Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, it's so good to have all of you at all of our churches this morning. I just want to welcome all of you. Hey, can we just celebrate everybody showing up in the rooms this morning? It's, it feels really good, doesn't it? All of our campuses, yeah, it's just awesome, 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 awesome. Wow. Hey, um, I am so glad to have all of you at all of our campuses joining us. And, and this is perfect season, or first, perfect time for you to be here today because we're starting this brand new series entitled Inconceivable. And, and here's why we're starting this series, because here's the reality. Whenever Jesus made the declaration you just saw um, in that bumper, that sermon bumper, standing in that blazing hot sun, it seemed so inconceivable that this Jewish teacher and his little small band of followers could bring about any kind of positive change in the world because of the world that they were experiencing. Whenever Jesus said, hey, I'm going to build my gathering, I'm going to build my congregation, I'm going to build my assembly, I'm going to build my movement, and it's going to happen, and hatred, and injustice, and corruption, and sin, and the gates of hell themselves, and death will not overcome this movement, this thing called the church. I'm sure that as Jesus was talking to his disciples, and these disciples over here listening to this, those words, they probably seem so hollow. They probably seem so unbelievable, so, so inconceivable to this group of guys, these young guys who are listening to Jesus tell them. I mean, to them, it was inconceivable that this thing that Jesus was declaring, this movement called the church, that it was going to thrive and that the Roman Empire was going to crumble. But you know what? The inconceivable happened. And 2,000 years later, we are here today as proof of that. See, what started off as this little insignificant movement in this corner of the Roman Empire, it grew and it spread and it impacted hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands and even millions of people. And here's what's interesting about all this. The Roman Empire, empire, powerful men with their armies and their decrees, all those things passed away. But you know what's interesting? And here's what we celebrate today. The church that Jesus Christ established over 2,000 years ago, it still stands. And I'm telling you, these past 16 weeks has again proven that. Because you're here today, many of you are in our buildings again, and the church hasn't fallen apart. But you know what? That was then, and this is now. We, we, we've come a long way from the time when Jesus and, and, and those first Christians were standing together, and Jesus was casting this vision of this thing called the church. So here's the question. Is it possible, is it possible for the inconceivable to happen again? I mean, our country, it is so divided about race and religion and politics. In fact, if you, were, if you were to ask people this question here, what does it mean to be a good Christian? I mean, there, there would be some people who, who would say this in our country right now. There are people who would say, there's no such thing as a good Christian. Because from their worldview, Christians are oppressive, Christians are judgmental, they're hypocritical, they're racist, and they're homophobic. In fact, about 50% of people 45 years and younger would say that Christians are the biggest part or a big part of the problem with our country right now. And that may be surprising to some of you. In fact, a study a few years ago, they found that 85% of young adults who are not Christians, they think 
these things right here when they think about a Christian. So, so ask them what it means to be a Christian, not just a good Christian, but just a Christian. And here's what will happen. They'll roll their eyes because they think this is the definition of a Christian. So, so you have that group of people with that worldview. And, and then over here, you, you have another group of people with a different worldview. And these on this other end of the spectrum, they, they think that they are good Christians because other people in the world view them somewhat this way. In other words, they justify their behaviors, they justify their anger, they justify their bad attitudes toward people by saying, I'm just standing for the truth. I'm just fighting against the immorality in our culture. Basically, this group of people, they think a good Christian is defined by what they're against, not what they are for. And their statement is, we're right and everybody else is wrong. And therefore, it's okay for me to treat other people wrongly. And so this is the other extreme worldview. And then there's many people who are kind of caught in the middle. And if you were to ask them, what does it mean to be a good Christian? They, they would just be appalled by the idea that they were even identified with something like that, that somebody would think of them with these words. And if you would ask them, what does it mean to be a good Christian? They, they would say something like, well, it's like loving your family or being a good person or, or you're just nice to people or giving a few dollars here and there or helping some people out at Thanksgiving, Christmas, or maybe even being a preacher's buddy or something. And man, you really need to get a life if that's the best you got. Anyhow, um, but the reality is it's like, you know, a few good deeds. It's kind of that whole mentality of, you know, I don't drink, I don't cuss, I don't chew, and I don't go out with girls that do, you know, that kind of thing. Man, it's just great to hear laughter in the room. That was awesome. Yeah, that's good. Wow. Here, here's the thing, though. You got these three different worldviews right now about Christianity. The, the problem is, is when you open up these ancient documents that we call the Bible, you never find one place where Jesus defines a Christian in any of these three worldviews that I just described. Matter of fact, he didn't even use the term Christian to describe the people or define the people who followed him. See, in the first century, Christianity was basically, if you were called a Christian, it was most likely a derogatory term that people used about people who followed Jesus. That, that was kind of the first century. It was like people who didn't believe in Jesus, they would use that as a derogatory term. So Jesus didn't have Christians. Instead, Jesus, and you might write this down, Jesus had disciples. That was the term. That was the way they defined themselves back then. And Jesus was very clear in defining for everyone what it meant to be a true disciple of Jesus. He made that very clear. In fact, he was so clear in the first century that there was no confusion. There was no debate about what it really meant to be a disciple of Jesus. Instead, he said, here's the thing that makes you a good disciple. He was so clear about it. He says, here's this one thing. There's one thing only that defines whether you are a good disciple or not. Unfortunately, 
In our culture, what has happened is those of us who call ourselves Christians, we, we've lost sight of this, but I'm telling you, it is so powerful. And here's the thing, it has the ability, this one thing, it has the ability, as history shows us, to change families, to change communities, to change cities, and to change a nation if we just do this one thing. And this one thing is more important in this season than I can, there's just not words enough to express how important it is. In fact, if we Christ followers, here's how important this one thing is. If we as Christ followers, if we had gotten this one thing right in our nation's history, there would have never been a civil war. Slavery would have been abolished by our founding fathers when our country began. There would have never been any need for Martin Luther King Jr. to take the stand he did and ultimately lose his life because his dream would have already been realized before he was born and racism would have been erased from our country from the day it started. In fact, this one thing not only would have changed the history of our country, but this one thing would eliminate the need of some Christians for this feeling that they need to be this religious right over here. In fact, this one thing, it would prevent Christians from being seen as, and sometimes even justified, as oppressive, judgmental, hypocritical, racist, and homophobic. See, if we, if we had allowed this one thing, our country would have been a much better place. If we had followed this one thing. Now, here's the thing. I know for some of you listening today, you're going, oh, that's inconceivable. That one thing could have that kind of effect. That one thing could do all of that. So what is that one thing? What is it? Well, in John chapter 13, we find out what that one thing is. I encourage you to take your Bibles and go with me to John chapter 13. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background because the circumstances surrounding this, it makes it even more powerful because when Jesus tells his disciples what that one thing is, it just makes this even more powerful because see, when Jesus spoke these words, he, it was less than 48 hours before he is going to be crucified. And he's having his famous last supper with his disciples. And at this meal, he not only predicts who's going to betray or that he's going to be betrayed, but he even tells them that Judas is the one who's going to do it. And you can imagine all the disciples, they are absolutely shocked about this whole thing. But then, as Jesus said, Judas, he gets up and leaves. And after Judas leaves, Jesus knowing now that his time is short, that Judas is going to betray him and he's going to be crucified, Jesus pulls the rest of the disciples, the other 11 together, and he tells them, he says, here is the one thing. Here is the most important thing that you need to hear. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen up, guys. If you missed everything else I told you for the last three years, you have got to get this. And then he defines for them what it means to be a good, a great Christ follower. What following Jesus must look like. And here is Jesus' instruction beginning in John chapter 13, verse 33. He says, my children... I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. 
And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Which means when Jesus says, I'm going to be with you a little bit longer, you're going to look for me, and, and you just as I told the Jews, can't go with me, you're not going to necessarily find me. It's kind of a statement of, man, there's something big that's about to happen. And I don't really have time to just waste here, so everybody lean in and pay attention. Notice what he tells them next in verse 34. He says, a new command I give you. And I'm sure the disciples at this point are thinking, okay, we're about to get the inside scoop. This is where it's going to happen for us. This is brand new. Nobody else knows this. So they get their iPads out. They're ready to take notes. Matthew, because he was a little bit richer because he had been a tax collector, he gets his iPhone out and he's ready to record his entire conversation. And I mean, Matthew's probably thinking, this is going to be big. I mean, like this is going to be so profound. And then Jesus says, here. Here it is. Love one another. And they're probably going, wait just a minute. That's not new. We were told to do that growing up as good Jewish boys. That, that's in the Old Testament. And maybe they turn their iPhones off, or their iPads off, and Matthew, Matthew stops videoing this thing. But see, what they don't realize is this is that Jesus didn't mean that this was a new command just in terms of information. No, this is a new command. Don't miss this, church. This is so important, especially in this season, because this is where we've missed it as a church. He says, no, this is a new command in terms of application. And this is where we failed on this command as a church, in our past, is we thought this was a command about information and Jesus is going, no, this is about application. This is how to love. In fact, he says, here's how you do it. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. In other words, Jesus says, if you want to know what I mean when I say a new command I give you, love one another, he's going to say, just look at how I loved you. Just follow my example in other words, guys, nobody in here wanted to bow down, stoop down, and wash each other's feet. But you know what? I just washed all of your feet, and I'm supposed to be your leader. I even washed the feet of Judas, who was going to betray me. And by the way, Nathaniel, you remember, Nathaniel, what you did the first time that you met me? Remember when your buddy Philip came to you, Nathaniel, and he said, Hey, I think I found the Messiah. You know what you said, Nathaniel? I'm sure Nathaniel kind of hung his head a little bit because he remembered what he said. Jesus probably reminded him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm like, Nathaniel, you not only slammed my family, but you slammed my whole town. What do I do, Nathaniel? I loved you. I accepted you anyway. I asked you to come and follow me and decide for yourself who I was. And now I want you to love each other. Even those people who have slammed you and put you down and diminished you. I, I want you to love them like I loved you. And how about you, Matthew? Remember when I first met you, Matthew? Where, where were you at, Matthew? And Matthew probably goes, well, I was sitting alongside the road um, collecting taxes. And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, you're doing a whole lot more than getting taxes from people. You were stealing. You weren't just collecting taxes, you were stealing. And you remember what I did, Matthew? told you to follow me. And you know what we did? We, we went to your house and we hung out with even some of your buddies and 
We had this big meal and this dinner together. So, Matthew, how did I love you? Well, unconditionally. You loved me just like I was. And Jesus goes, okay, as I've loved you, as, I, as you, you just watched me love Judas, as you've watched me love you, Nathaniel, you, Peter, you, Matthew, now I, I want you to go love one another as I have loved you. And then remember, guys, a few days ago, before we were here to have this meal tonight, we were coming here and I was telling you I must die. And you started arguing about who's going to be the greatest in my kingdom. And did I get angry with you? No, 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 I didn't get angry with you. I just sat down and I explained with humility. Why humility and serving others is the path to greatness. I just told you that loving people is the one thing. I, I didn't get mad at you. I just showed you. I demonstrated it as well. It's that one thing. And then Jesus, by his example of going to the cross, he, he even modeled for them that his love is bigger than people who treat him bad and people who are his enemies, people that want to kill him. On the cross, he goes, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And Jesus is saying to all of us, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus is saying, with the kind of acceptance, with the kind of kindness, with the kind of unconditional love, he says, I want you to go and love other people that way. And then Jesus explains this in verse 35. He says, by this, by, by this incredible kindness, by this amazing acceptance, not necessarily approval of everything that people do, but acceptance of their humanity and their dignity and their value. He says, by this, by this deep, not just this emotional, sappy kind of thing, but this supernatural, and don't miss this sacrificial, this sacrificial kind of love. He says, I, I want you to love people like that because by that kind of love, all people, not, not just the people like you or not just the people that agree with you, but he said, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, inferring as I, Jesus saying, have loved you. In other words, what does it mean to be a Christian? It means you love people the way Jesus loved you. Now, when you really stop and think about that, the implications is huge. Because really what Jesus is telling us is this, that love is the identifying mark of a disciple, that you, you can do all these other things, but if love is not a, the way that you're identified, he says love is the identifying mark of a follower, of a disciple. And you know, that is so convicting, isn't it? Because when you look at it this way, I mean, this pins us in the corner and it doesn't leave all this wriggle, wiggle room that we like to have as, as Christians. See, you, you can't debate this and you can't justify your way out of this. The distinguishing mark of a disciple isn't all those other things that all different kind of people with all these different worldviews identify with Christians. No, the thing that makes it obvious to the world that you're a follower of Jesus is that you love people the way that Jesus loved people. 
So Jesus says to his disciples at night, I want you to love people so deeply. I want you to love people so unconditionally that it draws people to the edge of your little faith community and they can't resist peeking in because of the way that you treat each other. And they go, wow, look at how they treat their widows and their elderly. Look at how they treat the marginalized and the depressed. Look at how they care for the orphans and the sick and the disabled. Look at how they love people who disagree with them. Look at how they love people who are their enemies. Look at how they love people who persecute them. Look at how they love people who are so different than them. But look at how they use their money and their time to help other people and to serve other people. Wow, those Christians, they love people like nobody I've ever seen before. See, that's what Jesus meant when he said, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And to their credit, to, to these guys' credit, that's what they did. They began to love like Jesus, and they loved like Jesus, and they loved like Jesus and the, for, for the first few centuries. That, that's what they did. That's what Christians were primarily known for for the very first three, four hundred years. In fact, Rodney Stark, he's a secular sociologist. He wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity in which he shares his story about the Roman Emperor Julian. Notice what he writes. The Emperor Julian launched a campaign. Don't miss this. He launched his own four campaign. The Emperor Julian launched a campaign to institute pagan charities in an effort, get this, to match the Christians. And that, that would be like the president or the speaker of the house or the leader of the Senate going, hey, we got to do something. Like we got to do something because... We got to match what the Christians are doing. In fact, he goes on. Julian complained in a letter to the high priest of Galatia in 362 that the pagans needed to equal the virtues of Christians. For, get this is what he said, for recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if pretended, and by their benevolence toward strangers. So here's this emperor going, hey, we got to step up our game because everybody's going to become a Christian because of the way Christians treat other people. I mean, Christians, he's even saying that Christians weren't just known for loving just their own. I mean, even benevolence towards strangers. I mean, they were loving the Romans outside the faith so well that Julian decided that he had to do something to match their benevolence or everybody was going to end up being a Christian. Now, you got to remember something. These early Christians, I mean, they had no power, they had no political influence, and they didn't need any. You know why? Because love is more powerful than that. They just chose to love one another as Jesus had loved them. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine what our world would be like today? If Christians love to this level, where leaders of governments were saying, ah, we got to step up our game or everybody's going to be a Christian because of the way they loved each other. Imagine if you just decided, okay, as we start out this series, if you decided, hey, we're going to do this in our family for the next month. 
For, for the whole season that we're in the series, we're, we're just going to do this in our family. Can, can you imagine what it would be like? I mean, your home would be so much different. It would be so much better. I mean, your relationship with your children would be better. You, you would grow to love and, and even maybe be closer to your parents as a student. Imagine if, if you love not just in your home like this, but what if you took this into the workplace and, and you had this kind of love for your boss or for your coworkers? And some of you might sit there and go, well, you can't take this kind of, you know, no emotional stuff into the workplace. We're not talking about emotional stuff at all. We're talking about a very practical expression. Don't miss this. We're talking about a very practical expression of treating other people the way you wish to be treated. I mean, think about it. If everybody treated each other with the kind of love that Jesus treated his disciples with and the people he was around with, man, wouldn't you look forward to going to work? I mean, see, the way that Jesus loved, it, it works in the workplace as well. Imagine, think about this. If you loved your annoying neighbor with this kind of love, well, what about the people who are different politically than you? And you just see them like they are so extremely different than you. And you just see them as extremely over the top obnoxious. What if you loved them the way that Jesus loved? I mean, if you started loving them that way, do you think you'd start maybe seeing a family member differently or a coworker differently or the neighbor differently? Would it, would it change the way you interact with them? Absolutely. Because you would begin to wash feet of people figuratively that might even betray you because that's what Jesus did. Oh, here's one. How about your in-laws? What if you started loving your in-laws that way? See, what if you started loving Christians or people who disagree with you morally? What if you started loving them? Now, let me just be clear. Be very clear about this. Loving people like Jesus loved people. It's not a means to an end. It's not a way to fix or control anybody. This isn't this. It's not like you start using this to say, okay, I'm going to love like Jesus because I need, my wife needs to change. Or I'm going to love like Jesus because my husband needs to change. And, and then you come along and go, well, I love like Jesus for a week and they're not any better. No, th this is not about that. See, don't miss this. This is so important. And if you miss this, you, you miss how hard loving like Jesus is. Loving like Jesus doesn't always end up making things better for you. Don't, don't miss that. We've missed that too long in the Christian church. Loving like Jesus doesn't end up always making things better for you. See, Jesus got crucified for loving the way he did. So it may not go good for you if you do this. I'm not going to stand up here and go, oh, if you'll love like Jesus, then everything will be just wonderful. You'll have health, wealth, and prosperity. No, no, no. Jesus loved like Jesus because he was Jesus, right? And he was crucified. Listen, loving like Jesus, it makes you extremely vulnerable to pain. Because you're going to experience people betraying you. You're going to experience people coming against you. You're going to experience people still trying to do evil to you and persecute you. But loving like Jesus is what it means to follow Jesus. And here's the thing. While it was inconceivable to them to think that that little group of first Christians, that group, that they could change the world, 
without any power or without any influence or without politics. Here's the thing. We have history, don't we? We have history to prove to us that it works. They changed the world by how they loved. And here's the thing, folks. If we're going to have a positive impact on our community, if the church is going to have a relevant voice, if the church is going to have any voice at all with what is going on in our country right now, if we're going to have any impact on our communities, if we're going to have an impact on our nation and our world, it's the only way we will be able to do so. And some of you are sitting there going, oh, but you don't understand. I mean, this world's going to hell in a handbasket and you don't understand how difficult my kids are. You don't understand what a mess my wife is or you don't understand what a wreck my husband is or you just don't understand how frustrating my boss or my coworker is or you don't understand all these people that are so difficult in my life. You may want to go back and listen to last week's talk. That might help you understand part of the problem. But here's the thing. If you're starting to think all of those things as I'm talking about loving people and you're going, you just don't understand how hard this is going to be. Here's the thing. If that's how you're starting to think, then you've already started to realize what it means to love like Jesus. You just started to realize how hard that's going to be. It's not going to be easy to love like Jesus. And you're going to resist. You're going to resist. And you're going to want to run away from loving like Jesus and, and protect yourself from all these difficult people. Here's what I want to challenge you to do during this series. Hold on to those resistance because what's going to happen is we're going to, re- we're going to address all those resistances that we have over the next few weeks. But just for now, what if during this series, over these next few weeks, what if whenever you find yourself in a situation that is just difficult with another person, What if you just ask yourself this question, how would Jesus love? And then just choose to do what Jesus would do. And and I always go to this, this is me. When it gets really difficult, I always picture myself. In fact, I have this little carving that one of my children gave me when they went to Israel. They came back and it's Jesus washing his disciples' feet. And I used to always see something like that. And I used to think of that as being one of the disciples that Jesus loved, like John or Peter or something like that. But I just put Judas's name on that guy. And I always go back there. When I'm having a difficult time loving someone, I go, Jesus, and he got on his knees and he washed Judas's feet. And then he went to the cross and he suffered shame and the weight of sin and the wrath of God for all the sin of all mankind. Listen, what if over the next few weeks, what if you just looked at that and said, I need to love like Jesus and begin to discover very practical, but understand it's going to be difficult, practical ways to love, but knowing it's going to be so difficult. So this week, we just want to give you something simple. And by the way, this is going to be the, the most simple assignment of the whole series. It's going to get more difficult from here. But what if you, every day this week, you, you began your week with just a simple prayer? What, what if when you woke up in the morning, you spent a minute or two reflecting on this? What, what if maybe when you're at the gym or when you're out taking a walk or when you're driving to work, what if you just prayed this prayer? Jesus, show me how to love as you have loved me. In this situation. God, God, you know the anger, the resentment, the bitterness, the frustration I feel right now. 
Can we just make this our prayer this week? Jesus, just show me how to love as you have loved me. Because see, the truth is, if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't get it. We, we don't know how to love as Jesus loved. We, we don't do that very often. We, we know how to love like what we would consider a decent human being knows how to love. But to love like Jesus, to, to love to the point that we would go to the extreme of, of, of going to the cross for our enemies, for the people who persecute us, to, to laying down our life, we, we don't understand yet how to love like Jesus. So show me, Jesus. So would you spend this week just asking God to make you aware of what it would look like to love your family, your coworkers, those people that are different than you, the way that Jesus loves you? And then can you live in such a way that people begin to go, wow, that's not just a good person. There's something supernatural going on with that person. And by the way, let's just make sure that we are not putting ourselves in any of those three categories of how different people define themselves as a follower of Jesus Christ. But let's become disciples. And the definition of a disciple is a person who can be identified by loving other people the way that Jesus loved us. And I know that sounds inconceivable, but I'm telling you, if we get this, I promise you, it can change our world. It's the only thing that will. Can I pray for you, Heavenly Father? As a church, we have the opportunity to begin this week loving one another in the way that you loved us. And I'm just praying right now, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us to begin just to pray this prayer every day this week, multiple times throughout the day. God, when it starts getting difficult, help us just say, God, show me. Show me how to love this person as you've loved me. God, we need the help of your Holy Spirit. And we're asking for that right now. We're going to lean into that every day. God, I thank you for the way that you loved us. And I thank you that even though it feels inconceivable, the reality is if we go in love like this, if we learn how to love like this, it can change our world. God, I thank you for this church and the commitment of so many people to live loving like Jesus. God, for those that may be with us or listening this morning and they've never just said, Jesus, I need to experience your love. I need to know your love so I can love like you. May this be the moment when they say, Jesus, I ask you to come in my heart, be my sin forgiver, my life leader from this day on. And I'm not going to try to be a Christian. I'm just going to be a follower. I'm going to be a disciple. And I'm going to learn to love like you. If you just pray that prayer, please let us know. If you just ask Jesus to come in and be your sin forgiver and your life leader, let us know that today before you leave. 
so we can help you take some next steps. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. It's the only way to live out this kind of love is to receive that love. God, I thank you for everyone who's just leaning in right now saying, Jesus, I need your help because what you're asking us to do, it's not natural. It is supernatural. And God, we all agree with that. But we're going to ask you to help us through this week. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks everyone for being with us. It's so good to have all of you in all of our buildings. Have a great day. We'll see you next Sunday.